electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. said, I'll bet you that if we laid down our deodorant on a, on a piece of paper side by side and left it for 24 hours in the same temperature, same room, same everything, theirs would evaporate a lot, fa a lot more than ours would. Is that where the commercials came from? That was the most boring commercials in the world, and I'm responsible for them. R those but commercials that we all know, I mean, they're still doing this on commercials, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, are they? It's they like, might be. Yeah. It's burned into my brain. It's like you see the two That's wipes, it. and then That's there's it. the time lapse. And Scott Gilpin, you're, if you're out there listening, you're responsible for that. See, now we know how it happened. There you go. Not many executives can say they've studied the finer points of everything from deodorant and washing machines to Bluetooth speakers and gaming keyboards. But Bracken Darrow can. Darrow is the CEO of Logitech, a company that once specialized in mainstream PC mice and keyboards. One of the remarkable things about him is his appetite for learning. His curiosities led him from a modest upbringing in western Kentucky to leading one of the smartphone era's most remarkable turnaround stories. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, Stitcher, etc., etc. Once you've done that, tell a friend. These talks are pretty good conversation starters. I sat down with Bracken Darrow for the Fort Knox podcast to find out how his upbringing shaped him and how his curiosity helped him find his way to the C-suite. Logitech stock has quadrupled since he took over four years ago. The company is now worth $5.5 billion. Here's Bracken Darrow. I'm really curious about your path to the position that you're in now because you've been at just a variety of companies. Um, you know, you're an English major like me. Yeah. And yet, oh, you are too? I was too. Oh, wow. But I knew I liked you. I hadn't put it all together yet. I didn't take enough accounting classes to qualify for a CPA. You were probably close. But no, not even close. Um, <laughs> so I there made are, that mistake. There are some differences. Uh, I also spent some time working in Kentucky. Oh, did you really? Yes. Hence Fort Knox. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's, I, I and, and hence Bracken. I know you're from Kentucky, That's right? That's right. That's yeah. right. So I want to get into all that. But first, let's talk about Logitech and okay. the difference between Logitech when you joined. Okay and Logitech now where you're headed? Because people know, you know, yeah. mice and, you know, cameras, various things that you're doing, but give us the big picture vision and how much has changed. Speakers? Yeah, I, guess, I mean, I guess the, the, the category change is, is probably the thing that a con the average consumer would see the most. So, you know, when I came into the company, we were largely, you know, we were, uh, maybe we had 20% um, non sort of legacy businesses like the PC peripherals that everybody knows, the mouse, the keyboard, the headset. You know, roll forward four years, we're, we're in a lot of different categories. You know, we're, uh, you know, half of our business now is outside of that space, and that's the part that's growing fast. And mm -hmm. when I came in, um, we were declining. You know, we had a steep decline. I think maybe we had 10% of our business was growing double digit. Now, now you know, 50% is growing double digit. 60% is growing double digit, and we're and the whole business is growing almost every category. So, it's been a really exciting and, and uh, interesting turn. 
And the company now I'm looking up, uh, I was looking at it earlier today, the market value of the company market cap, over $5 billion. Your stock has been on quite a tear. People are believing in Logitech. What's turned them on to it? Well, I think when, they, when I first came in, um, they thought, well, the PC's dead. Logitech's a PC company, so Logitech's dead. And Logitech's growth curve before that time, for the, the, the 26, 27 years, we're 35 years old, for 26 or 27 years, our growth curve was, our growth uh, drivers were really simple. That PC just, platform just grew. We started out with a mouse around that PC, and then we started, we went into our own mice, we started gaining share in mice, we grew that way. So we grew with the platform, more, more, more PCs, more mice. Then we gained market share in mice by getting into our own brand and becoming the market leader. Then we added products around the, that PC. So we went to keyboards and PC speakers and headsets and webcams. So we had three ways to grow. We grew with the market, we grew market share, and we entered adjacencies right around the PC platform. Mm. All that came to a screeching halt uh, in about 2008, 2009, 2010, when the PC slowed down and we really didn't have anything else to go into around the PC. And so we, we started to go south. Right. So the, the big difference now, the, the growth driver for us now is actually uh, completely different and very similar. So it's completely different because it has almost nothing to do with the PC. Everything we're, the platform now is the cloud. So the cloud is growing rapidly across more and more and more broad platform areas, whether it's smart home or, or streaming music or, or PC gaming, which sounds like PC, but it's really gaming in the cloud. Mm or video conferencing, and we're now making peripherals that, that enable the cloud. So we're making cloud peripherals instead of PC peripherals. Right. And that's why we're growing. So now we, we grow because the platform grows. We, we're gaining market share in those categories like Bluetooth speakers we're in, and then we're also entering, entering adjacencies. So same three drivers, but a completely different uh, platform. Now I love people's stories of how they got to where they are. Um, I know John Chambers is from West Virginia. Brad Smith, CEO of Intuit, I've also known for a, for a while. He's from West Virginia. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, you're from Kentucky. How does a guy from Kentucky, English major in college, end up the CEO um, of Logitech? Take me back to the, the situation where you were a kid. What, what town did you grow up in? By the way, Tim Cook's from Alabama, another Th son. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, uh, I grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky. 53,000 people. Yep. I think it had 55,000 people then. <laughs> I think it's about the same. Uh, it was a great place to grow up, and I grew up a basketball fanatic. And uh, Well, you were in Kentucky after all. Uh, exactly. And uh, I wasn't a great basketball player, but I was, a, I was, I was really great at, at spending time playing basketball. And I, and I got addicted to leadership when I was pretty young because I, I grew up. I'm the, I'm, I was the height I am now when I was about 12 years old. Oh, wow. So, I was, so and you I, were going to be. I was going to be a star. I mean, my, and by the way, I'm, I'm about six feet tall. So my, uh, that's stretching it, by the way, but nobody can see on, my, <laughs> on, a on podcast, your, blog, yeah. your podcast. So, uh, so, so I, I, you know, I was about this height when I was little. And, and, so I, and I, was also, I had two older brothers and a younger sister, too, and they were super competitive. Sport, you know, playing sports. So I was just a really good athlete, at least relatively speaking, when I was young. And uh, and so I, you know, I was kind of a natural leader. I mean, people literally looked up to me, and, and I and I I don't think I was very good at it, but but I liked it. You know, I got kind of addicted to it. Then I stopped growing. I went from center to big forward to small forward to point guard. bad shooting guard <laughs> to an attempting a point guard, and then I stopped playing basketball. But but then I got into leadership roles, and I. And that was in Kentucky. I was just president of my student body, and 
And uh, anyway, so I, you know, that was kind of the beginning. Tell me about your household growing up. You mentioned siblings, uh, your parents. Were you guys um, well off, working yeah. class? My, my mom was a first grade teacher. My dad was a college professor. They divorced when I was very young, when I was about uh, 11 or 12. And we, we really didn't have any money. My, you know, first grade teacher, four kids, you know, single mom. So we really didn't have any money. We, we literally would wear like the same jeans all the time, like a lot of the people. I mean, I, I wasn't a, I'm not a Horatio Alger story. I mean, we, we had plenty to eat. And, but we didn't have any money. And, and I, it didn't make me particularly money conscious, but, but I certainly did um, always envy, you know, the, the, the opportunities that I thought were available to people had money that I mm. didn't. And uh, it's really ironic, because now when I look back on that, that was the biggest advantage I ever had. You know, I think, uh, well, I, you know, I, I really feel sorry for, for people who grow up with too much money, you know, because they don't have that, they don't have to strive, or they potentially don't have to strive as much. And so I had it easy, because I didn't have a choice. It wasn't a, there was no option. It's kind of like the sink or swim thing, you really had, and neither, the same for my brothers and sister. I see a lot of people who are very successful coming out of, uh, you know, very comfortable uh, family lives. But I'll have to say, I, I, in, in a way, you could admire them more than me because I had it easy. I didn't have a choice, and neither did my brothers or my sister. We had to make it. So uh, anyway, so that's, yeah, no, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. Who are the people who you saw um, as, as a teenager who you saw as having made it or who had more than you did? Well, again, it really wasn't about money so much for me. It was just about opportunity because I've right. always been driven by Who impact. had the opportunity? Um, well, there was a guy uh, who probably didn't grow up with anything either, but there was a guy when I was late in my teenage years, well, actually when I started college, who was a mentor of mine, who was this uh, super impressive, super articulate um, guy who had gone to Harvard Business School. He came back to my hometown to work for a, a brilliant uh, leader, Dennis Hendricks, um, and they, he ran a company called Texas Gas Transmission Corporation. And I was so impressed by him, and I, and I could just see that, boy, he's got an opportunity to really have a big impact. And so he was very inspirational for me. But my, you know, to be honest, my, I was probably, uh, I, I was, I was, uh, I think I can speak for all my siblings that the most, um, that our grandfather was very inspirational. I mean, my mom and dad were, were, were terrific and, and inspirational too. My grandfather was very inspirational. He was a college president for a very small uh, struggling junior college. Hmm. He was a big, serious, but fun, affable, uh, very responsible, super high integrity man. And he and my grandmother, you know, were, we certainly looked up to them, but they didn't have a lot of money either. So. Do you guys go back many generations in the area? No, we, uh, we moved there. For my, my mom was born in Dallas. My dad was born in New York. And we lived in Texas for a while, Abilene, Texas. And then we moved. And when I was in the first grade, or when I started first grade, we moved to Owensboro, Kentucky. Okay. So I guess with your dad as a college professor, your grandfather as a college president, it was a foregone conclusion that you were going to college. Yeah. Yeah, it was a given. You know, and my mom was a, uh, my mom had grown up with this dad who was a college president in this small junior college. And my grandmother was a college professor. Oh, wow. So, and they were, by the way, my dad and my Are they and disappointed that you're not a college professor? <laughs> no. <coughs> no, I think they're okay with that. You do good educational videos for Logitech products, though. That's right. That's exactly right. I, I spell well. You know, I've got my my uh, punctuation's always accurate. But, yeah, so, so there were, there were a, lot of, uh, a lot of educated people. Actually, my brother is a college president now. He was a lawyer. He grew up a lawyer. He finally jumped ship from the legal profession and landed in... Uh, in Kentucky Wesleyan College, where my dad taught for 30 oh, wow. years, and 
and uh, and where he went, my other brother went. I took a couple of summer classes there, so it's it's kind of all in the family. But so he's now a college president, just like my grandfather was, and he's terrific. In college, you majored in English. Yeah. At what point did you start on the real business track, focusing on that? I knew day one that uh, I was always good at math. I mean, at least I thought I was pretty good at math. And so when I went to college, I thought I've got to, if I really want to be a leader, um, I didn't know whether it's politics or business or. I need to I need to be more articulate because I was practically inarticulate. I was the kid in my at the dining room table in the rare time when we'd all sit at the dining room table where, you know, my brothers would be talking up a storm, my sister would be talking, and I'd be completely like a deaf mute. I mean, I didn't say a word. I was so intimidated by them. You know, they seemed so brilliant and funny, and I was just you know silent. So I think I I really decided you know if I'm going to be if I'm serious about this, I've got to get better at articulation. So. I decided to major in English then, and then I, I said, but I knew I was going to take enough accounting and economics to go on and, and get a job and have so, a career. So what did you do after undergrad? I went to public accounting, so I, I did, as you said in the opening, uh, take enough accounting that I could that could sit for the CPA exam, and I did that. So I, was, I think I'm one of the few C, uh, you know, CPAs probably who ever majored in English. <laughs> And I may be one of the worst. <laughs> Maybe the worst. Well, but it's all relative because, I mean, you're it's not the relative. CFO, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, you went through a number of uh, kind of mainline industrial companies, yeah. right, starting out. Yeah. Why? Well, I, uh, you know, I was, trying to, um, I was trying to learn and I was trying to build myself. And I, I looked at these big companies I thought, you know, they were the brand names of a career. P&G yeah. in the region in Cincinnati, right? Yeah, Procter & Gamble. Um, you know, I worked at PepsiCo as an inter in internal auditor before I went back to business school. Then I went to graduate and I went to Procter & Gamble. And then I went to GE from there. And, you know, I was, uh, and, and, you know, it was wonderful for me. And for the time in my life and the time when businesses were doing what they were doing, it was wonderful because they had the, there were academies for, for building talent. And, uh, and I, Sort of instinctively felt that, and so I, I, you know, I really wanted to build. A, I wanted to be a general manager, and I, but I wanted to do it through products and through marketing, and so that's why I went to P and G. Um, how did you know you wanted to be a general manager? Well, that's how I associated leadership with that. I thought, well, you know, if you want to, if you want to try to be a lead, if you want to try to lead something, in in the world that, in the business world, that's usually in the not always, but it's often in a general manager role. Now I realized later. Uh, a little bit later, that there's just leadership roles are everywhere, at every level, every job. In fact, you know, uh, there's so many, so many strong leaders who are not, who never touch a general management role. But, mm -hmm. but that's what I thought at the time. It's, it's what I'd kind of grown up with. And when I went to business school, they were kind of teaching that. Was business school to make the jump from accounting to being seen in a broader light? Yeah, I, you know, it was all, you know, I, I sort of had a very, I've always been a very long-term person. So right. even before I went to undergrad, I always planned to go to law school or business school or both. Okay, and you went to Harvard Business School. I did. It's and, a pretty um, good one. Yeah, well, it, was, it was great for me. <laughs> I, I, can't, I still can't believe they let me in. And in fact, they probably can't either. But, but, I, but, I, but it was great for me. And, and uh, I, would, I always planned to go back to graduate school. And when, um, you know, when I, when I applied to undergrad, there's no way I would have gotten into a, there was an article written somewhere that said, uh, you know, I chose not to go to, uh, you know, an Ivy League school because I, I, I didn't, I didn't think I could afford it or afford the lifestyle. But, and that that may be true, but there's no way I could have gotten in there anyway. So, <laughs> but but anyway, so yeah, I, I always knew I would do that. And I, and w and when I went there, the 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 ultimate goal was to build 
you know, I think everybody's building a brand. You're building a brand, I'm building a brand. Jess over here next to me, Tyler over here is next to me. You know, we're building brands. And so I, I always thought to myself, okay, I'm gonna build a brand so I can have a bigger impact, a bigger positive impact on the world. That was really my mission. I don't know if people were thinking that way in the 90s though, were they? I don't know, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. This whole brand of you thing seems like a creature of the last 15 years or so. Well, I may have adopted it after the fact and convinced myself <laughs> okay. that I was thinking that then, but I think I was, yeah. yeah. Um, Silicon Valley. Yeah. How'd you end up there? Well, I was, uh, uh, I had, you know, I, I, as I said, I'd been at, at P&G, then I'd gone to GE, and, and both those were wonderful experiences. I learned a ton. And, uh, and then I was uh, acquired back into P&G when I left. I left GE to go to Gillette when Jim Keltz was doing a turnaround in Gillette. And I, I got to run the Braun business out of Germany. P&G Braun business. Back. Yeah, Braun. That was wonderful. Got to know Dieter Rams, who's like the godfather of all industrial design. And Tell me about that. What was the major challenge that Braun was facing when you came in? Well, Braun was, you know, we were, we were struggling to, to really do a lot of the same things that are having at Logitech. We were really struggling to, to find new growth engines. And, and so we were all about um, improving our profitability and growing. You know, mm -hmm. that's really what businesses are all about. So, so it was a terrific experience. And I was convinced, um, probably naively, that you could, that I could take, I could work with the leadership team there, and we could reinvent the Braun brand back to what it was, kind of in the late '80s and early '90s, when it was, it was really a design brand, design brand built on great technology. And we were bought by P&G, and you know, and and uh, I think A.G. Laffley, the CEO, was really excited about the business, and mm -hmm. all of us were. But after, you know, after about a year there, I just, I just got the feeling this isn't going to happen here because the margins on this design, I'm, I'm showing quotation marks stuff are just low. They're 10, 12%. And, and Braun's products for those who might not know at yeah. the time. Well, we, the products that, we, that really went with Gillette and therefore mm -hmm. went with P&G were the shavers and uh, the shavers that you think of, you know, shavers and epilators. The, uh -huh. An epilator, John, is, is a torture device. It, <laughs> it's a women's torture device that they do to themselves. So it's, there are some women in the world who take this thing and actually it plucks hair by the root uh, kind of one by one in a machine. It was uh. actually created uh, off of a, an original patent, as I understand it, was for chicken plucking. <laughs> so, but anyway, so Braun was no, a leader wait, go on, chicken plucking <laughs> uh, women's style. And, uh, and anyway, so we who made Who was these... the genius who decided I know? <laughs> I don't I, It should be torture. Well, we've, we've plucked all the chickens. What are you doing <laughs> What's next? Yeah. <laughs> and for some reason, men never tried that on their faces. Uh, I don't know what to say about that, but but anyway, the bottom line is that the that that business was a very high margin, beautiful business, and it looked a lot like not completely, but a lot like the blade and razor business at Gillette. So I just said, you know, boy, this is going to be really hard to build this multi-category uh, design-oriented business built on engineering uh, inside of P and G because P and G appropriately shouldn't put a lot of money in this. They really shouldn't invest it. So maybe I was wrong. Maybe they would have had a stayed, but. So I left, I went to Whirlpool, where I thought, well, I loved what, uh, what they'd been doing. I think uh, you know, Jeff Fettig and Mark Bitzer and that team had done an amazing job at Whirlpool, really turning it into a multi-brand company. I mean, it, it had always been Whirlpool. Then it became Maytag, and it became KitchenAid. And I looked at what they're doing, I thought, okay, this is somebody who, who gets it. They're building multi-brand, multi-category. Now, these are some of what at least five, 10 years ago, I used to think of as the most un-Silicon Valley companies, <laughs> right? Yeah. We're talking like diapers yeah. and detergent. We're talking about washing machines. We're talking yeah. about 
razors and shaving and it's... chicken plucking it's... as a legacy, <laughs> right? I mean, they weren't doing that yeah. anymore, but that's where the yeah. technology was. Yeah, right. okay. so, so if you liked that, yeah. you'll love Silicon Valley. How did that, like, <coughs> was this all building up to, I mean, they all run on electricity. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, you know, the truth is that I love products and I love everything. I, I'm, I'm a, an extremely curious person. You know, I, I know you well enough to know you are too. So I, I'm a, you and I are probably very similar. I, I'm interested in almost everything. I love mm -hmm. art. I love physics. I love math. I love English. I love poetry. I, I love it all. So to me, when I heard about the the job from Garino DeLuca, who was the chairman, mm -hmm. the CEO at the time, and the chairman, he'd he'd step back in when they when we're going to make the change. Um, when I met him, I I hadn't even thought about uh, I, I Silicon Valley as a career, but I thought when I met him, I thought. Wow, this is another place where you can do this multi-brand, multi-category model, because uh, you know I, the more I got to know it, the more I thought every category could be reinvented because the cost of every of all the technology that that goes into all these Silicon Valley products is going down all the time. You know, if if those guys who made who started shampoo or the chicken plucker had had uh, access to almost free microprocessing, almost free storage, almost free sensors when they started those those businesses, imagine what they'd be. They didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, now they do. So every category can be reinvented. Every category, a new categories can be invented. And then I thought, what better place to be than a place that's 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 already sitting in that space and being a consumer product in this Silicon Valley technology world. Curious people know how to get up to a good practical knowledge level yeah. on a subject pretty fast. So at least they can have a conversation. Yeah. They can sort of splash in the pool exactly. with, with the that's engineers. Exactly right. It can go wet. Yeah. How do you do it? Uh, that's a pretty good description. I mean, I think um, I've never been intimidated by any subject, um, but uh, but I'm probably uh, not a master of very many either. Um, and I and I I'm really really interested in almost everything. How do you get to cruising altitude? Uh, just asking a lot of questions and being very hands on. So first, you find who? Well, you know, I love engineers, and Logitech's an engineering company first, and so we are filled with engineers and. And they, engineers love what they do, you know, the best ones, and, they, and they, they want to talk about it. And the best engineers are actually really good at explaining what, the, what, what, what really happens inside a product. Uh, I'm reading a book right now, John, that I'm, I'd recommend to anybody listening to this, which is, it's the seven laws of physics uh, easily explained by a guy named Rovelli. Mm. Einstein's theories of, uh, theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, you read that book and you go, wow, it's so simple. You know, but he's brilliant. He's a pure, theoretical, brilliant physicist, but he's explained it so well. And that's the way I feel about engineering. You know, I, I don't know how, I mean, I couldn't do anything that our engineers can do. But I can understand and I can ask all the right questions and, and just challenge. And then they have to do, do their job just like I have to do mine. Where did you start doing that? What, what job was it where you started going to the hardcore product people and saying, oh, how does this really work? Uh, maybe because you were trying to solve a problem. Or it, it, was, it was a P&G. I was uh, working in the sexiest business that P&G has, which is deodorants. Oh. I was working on Old Spice before it was cool to be Old Spice. Before and it was on a horse. Before it was on a horse. Right. And, uh, I, uh, and, and I was trying to reinvent and, and, and turn around Old Spice. And so I was sitting with, uh, with a, a great engineer, who a chemist, talking about what we could do to... 
we had a superior formula, but I wanted to be able to show it to the world. And I wanted to, I was trying to brainstorm with him, how could we show people? What does people? a superior formula look like in deodorant? It was a longer lasting formula. So you put it on, and, and if you and I do the same kind of exercise, that deodorant lasted longer than anything else out there. Okay. And it was demonstrable, measurable, et cetera. But I didn't want to show charts and graphs. I wanted some visible way, some credible way that you could look at it and say, wow, it really is, must be better. So I sat with that crazy uh, good Scott Gilpin, and Scott and I brainstormed. He was a very creative guy, and we finally came up with a way to do it. And he said, you know, he said, we have uh, propylene glycol in this, and propylene glycol evaporates less fast. And that's one of the reasons why this product is better. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why it lasts longer. He said, I'll bet you that if we laid down our deodorant on a, on a piece of paper side by side and left it for 24 hours in the same temperature, same room, same everything, Theirs would evaporate a lot, a lot more than ours would. Is that where the commercials came from? That was the most boring commercials in the world, and I'm responsible for them. R those but commercials they that we all know. I mean, they're still doing this on commercials, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, are they? It's, they like, might be. Yeah. it's burned into my brain. It's like you see the two That's wipes, it. and then That's there's it. the time lapse. And Scott Gilpin, if you're out there listening, you're responsible for that. See, now we know how it happened. There you go. So that was. That's right. And uh, and then uh, so that was the that was the first time I ever really had a. A real project and, and, and uncovered the power of what I think of as design design mm. which is uh, cross-functionally working together to really solve a problem and uh, in that case it was a visual problem but then now we're we use design to solve to, to create uh, superior experiences or magical experiences for consumers. Did you have to demo that to like the CEO or something eventually before that ended up in front of uh, we America? had we, we you know we, we demo it was really interesting doing it we had to um, we had to prove it. You know, the legal department's really incredibly important there, so we had to prove it to ourselves. And then uh, I had a general manager, Susan Arnold, who was a, another mentor of mine, a wonderful person, and uh, she really believed in what we were doing, what I was trying to get done. And uh, you know, she she ran uh, points for me and making all the things that I tried to do on Old Spice happen. And together, you know, she and I and Mike Weggy and other people that I worked with at the time, Larry Plosky. Um, Mike Dodge, you know, we, we, we really turned around Old Spice. We, we never got to the horse, but we did get to the concept, which was Larry Plosky wrote a, a memo on this, which was, um, you know, we were really trying to figure out what's the role for Old Spice in the world. We'd already turned it around. We doubled the business, gotten the profit going, and we really was working. We were pouring a gas in the fire. And he wrote this memo after a lot of discussions we'd had about um, uh, the concept of unapologetic masculinity. Hmm. And uh, that was such a powerful idea at the time. What year is it? This was probably 1996, 1997. This was before the, the man on the horse. Right. But that was yeah. really, I would say, the beginning of that. And so Larry, you know, really had the big idea. And uh, and then the, the execution came later from all those great people who worked on Old Spice ever since. And That's just one of those iconic, for me, yeah. marketing moments along with Raise your hand if you're sure, which also yeah. happens to be a That's right. deodorant commercial. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting to know where that came from. So you also believe in being provocative when it comes to ideas. I love I love uh, provocative ideas. I love challenging. Uh, tell me again. We've had a piece of this conversation before okay. about the sculpture that uh, oh, this will make me popular. 
<laughs> well, I, I uh, you know, I'm not, I'm no art expert. I don't, I'm not some big art collector or anything, but I do like art. But I, but I'm more interested in, um, in being aware of your thinking. You know, I read this book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Another great book if anybody's interested in, in one. And uh, it, you, you, you just don't think about how many things are you don't that you you don't think carefully about anymore, especially as you get older. I mean, if you uh, Henry Markram, who's the, one of the leading brain researchers in the world. He's building a full-scale simulation of the human brain in uh, Geneva. And he, I, was, I had lunch with him one time, and, and, and I said, tell me something I, I wouldn't know about the human brain. He said, when you walk into a room and you're a little tiny child, you soak in the whole room. You see it all. Uh, when you walk into the room as an adult, you see the sliver in the corner, and you build the room in your brain. You actually don't even see it. Hmm. Most, most of what you think you see, you don't see, because your brain's already seen so much pattern that it builds the pattern around it. And so I... I never made a big mark on me. I thought, God, you know, think how many things, how many mistakes we make in our roles because we're because our brain's building based on pattern recognition and we're not seeing or thinking anymore objectively. But that was that was probably built into us to keep us safe. For right? sure. Because you only need to see what's different. You're if exactly you're right. On the prairie and there's a lion there this time. You you don't need to look at, oh, the grass is green. Look how tall it is. And there's but, trees. But to but to but to win. You have to do things different, and so uh, you often have to do things different. So I became a little bit obsessed with this idea of how do I escape um, autopilot, mm. and so autopilot to me was that. So I got interested in it in a lot of different ways. You know, we built, we, we started having these, this process inside the company that I stole from uh, Ed Catmull from Pixar, <laughs> around called the Brain Trust, where we challenged the people working on a project on a new business, uh, and then they'd go away and they could do whatever they wanted. But at least they got challenged. Challenge them how? Challenge. So they'd come in and talk about, you know, kind of where they were, what's the concept, what's the technology. And, and I'd try to get somebody from marketing, from, you know, some people who had experience or were experts in those various areas to come in and really challenge them. And we still do that today. We call them our seed meetings. Um, but, in, but, it, but, I, but I related it also to art because I thought, you know, modern art is, a lot of modern art is very provocative. It's, it's forcing you to think. So I saw, I went to this art fair one time, and I saw, these, uh, <laughs> I saw this machine gun up on the wall. And I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm a totally not a gun person at all. I, I think I fired a gun once in my life when I was a kid and scared myself to death. <laughs> and um, anyway, so I'm not a gun person, but I see this machine gun on the wall. I thought, how'd they let that thing in here? And then I looked closely, and it was made out of typewriters, old typewriters, like royal typewriters. And so I thought, wow, we're the, we're the, in a way, we're the biggest typewriter company in the world now because we're the keyboard company. So, and this, and the message that this artist was all about was the word is, is you know, this pen is mightier than the sword. The word is, my, is more powerful than a weapon. So I bought three of them, and uh, they weren't expensive. I bought three of them, and I put them up on the wall in our offices just to make people think. You know, I, I knew people walk in and go, what the blank is a machine gun doing on the wall? And, uh, and I, I made the mistake of not explaining what they were. So a lot of people thought, God, what's wrong with this guy? And <laughs> so then I, I, I caught myself after, you know, enough people grabbed me by the lapels. After and said, a few what are you emails doing? to... Yeah. Right. So I, then I put words over weapons up over the top of it. And, uh, and I think it's okay now. Uh, what's been the most surprising result that you've gotten from taking that tack or challenging... The conventional thinking. Uh, most surprising. Um, I'm thinking about that. You know, maybe the most uh, the most 
I don't know whether it's surprising or satisfying, but it's, it's really, and I would say it's really uh, what design is all about. You know, good design. Good design's not uh, aesthetics. You know, it's really about um, really rethinking the experience with the user in mind and building it around it. And I'd say, you know, a couple of products that I think are, are really surprising. They were at least at the time a little surprising. I remember the first time that Rory Dooley and the team that was working on the Ultimate Ears Boom, UE Boom, this, this, this tube, of, speaker. tube of music that's yeah. waterproof. And <coughs> I still remember going to the design firm at the time. We didn't have design internal. Bronco and the, the non-object guy, Steve and Mal, and I, I remember going to their offices and seeing the, the first model and thinking, are people, a, a round speaker, is this going to work? And, um, and they explained why they were doing it. And the reason they were doing it was because just like you, in the blog, you know, these people listening can't see that we're sitting around a table. You know, we're sitting essentially in a circle, if you think about it. If you put this cup in the middle of the circle, if it were playing music, it would, in theory, play to all of us the same way. Mm -hmm. So the, at least the perception of that's important, you know, because it feels like we're, we're kind of all equal, we're all hearing the same thing. So that was the starting point for their idea. Was two, two, the, in the past, uh, Bluetooth speakers were built like house speakers, where, except without a cord. And so they just mm -hmm. put it in the middle of the table and it'd play to two sides. So that was the starting point of their idea was this, you know, we should build a Bluetooth speaker for, for what it's used for, which is to go to the beach, to sit at a picnic table, to go outside. It ought to be waterproof and super sturdy, but it ought to always be playing the same for everybody. Hmm. And so that was a bit of a surprising and, and I'd say completely objective idea. And it really worked. And that business has exploded for us over the last four years. How do you think kids today um, should maybe look at things differently than you did as a kid? And how should they look at things the same? Like if you as a parent, have to do it all over again. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this in terms of, um, yeah. you know, the, the the potential danger in too much privilege. Yeah. But what what are some of the things that <coughs> should be different from when you were growing up, and what what are some of the things that shouldn't change? Oh, that's a really hard question, John. I, you know, I my kids are are now 19, 22, and twenty four, so I can't talk about this without thinking about them. Um, you know, I think that, I don't know if it's as, as different from when I was growing up, but I'd say everything's always changing. You know, when I was growing up, I spent most of my spare time, when I wasn't playing basketball or football or something, I was uh, watching Gilligan's Island, Family Affair, and uh, <laughs> the Flintstones. And, and, and at the time, I think most of us, probably those of us watching it, and certainly my parents and all most adults thought we were ruining our brains. And... And uh, who knows? Maybe we'd all be Einsteins if it hadn't been for a family affair. But uh, <laughs> but I but I you know I think we're in the same spot today. You know, with with PC gaming, which we're a part of. And so a lot of people are really terrified by PC gaming, and they feel like it's or, or gaming in general, Snapchat Facebook, or Facebook or right. Reddit or you know it's an addiction, it's a problem. You know, I think it's it's true that everything you know, in excess can can be a problem. But but I also think that all these things really do grow your brain. In, in different ways. I, I remember when my oldest son, who when he was about eight or ten, he was playing a video game, and uh, he was learning economics so early <laughs> through that video game where you had to buy and sell. Um, I don't remember what it was now. Like I can just remember one line of the game. But anyway, so so I, I don't know what to say except that I think you know every in every generation you have a new set of problems. It was fast food and Flintstones when I was growing up. Now it's uh, you know not enough reading and. And probably not enough uh, sports. 
Were you a chores and summer jobs sort of parent? Uh, no, I really wasn't because we moved around the world. So we were, we, you know, I, I dragged my, my kids all over the place. So we moved. My, all three of my kids, I think, went to five schools between the first grade and the 12th grade mm. in uh, three different countries and f five different cities. So they just didn't have time to, to have summer jobs much. Now, since then, they have. And, uh, and they're wonderful kids. I mean, uh, but, and so they were really in, either unlucky or lucky. They really got exposure to a lot of different cultures, a lot of different languages. They all speak Spanish pretty well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I won't pretend to have been the best parent in the world. I think, you know, I was probably among the best at how much I loved them. And, and I'd hate to be judged on the rest of it because I'm <laughs> sure I was as bad or worse than anybody listening to this podcast. Our blog, blog, uh, podcast, podcast. Sorry. How how did being a parent change you as a leader? Um, I think you know. I I think it's interesting. I, if I go back to when I was a student body president when I was eighteen, I remember having, and I hope none of my uh, buddies in the student council are, are listening to this. But you know, you had a group of people that did all the work, <laughs> and you had a group of people that didn't. And I remember thinking in there, and those, uh, by the way, if you're listening, you're the ones who did all the work. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, the, 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 I remember thinking, God, you know, I can't wait till I'm out, I have a real job and, and people and have, get paid. And, and so they do the work. Everybody does the work. I, I thought the same thing. I yeah. was a jerk student body president. Oh, you were too. Okay. I was, <laughs> I had a huge <laughs> ego and lorded it over others and was oh. like, if you don't feel like doing the work, then you should just quit. Yeah, <laughs> and we were so sure of ourselves. <laughs> you know, and, and I realized later, it's, uh, you know, after I was working for a few years, and I, I don't know what I was doing, but I, maybe it was five or six years in, I thought, wait a minute, this is exactly like being a student body president. I always, you have to, you always have to get people excited about what you're doing. You have to inspire them. You have to listen to everyone. You have to engage them. It's really no different. It's the same job as that student council president. So in a way, I, I felt, you know, like if I learned anything from my kids, I, I, and I learned a lot from my kids. I hope they learned something from me. But I, but I would say that little lesson kept, keeps coming in handy all my, all my life. And I'm, I'm certainly, uh, I'd say the best thing that you per selfishly get besides the love and affection of your kids is, is the humility. Mm. Because, you know, my kids don't hesitate to, even if they don't mean to, to correct me. <laughs> and I am wrong, so often. Uh, and it's great. It's really great. Well, you're doing some exciting things with Logitech also. Uh, the cloud-based cameras yeah. that people can use for all sorts of different things, Bluetooth yeah. speakers, etc. Always exciting to see what you're coming out with next. So, Bracken, thank you for sitting down. For it's, so, it's always so good to, to sit with uh, with you, John, and especially since now your, your show is Fort Knox. I'm from Kentucky. You can't beat it. Bring it all home. All right. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, John. My thanks to Bracken Darrell. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Meanwhile, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, or Periscope, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. 
And next on the podcast, Jeff Lawson is the CEO of Twilio, a company he founded that recently went public on the New York Stock Exchange. He's been an entrepreneur since he started videotaping weddings in middle school, and a big part of his story is about learning from setbacks and coming back stronger. Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox Now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. You sure don't want to miss that. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend, please. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.